Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring visibility and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And this week we're looking at Come Follow Me, Doctrine and Covenant 29, and Easter Week. We are also excited to announce that we are now an official member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Journal is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Other podcasts that are in the network are Beyond the Block, whom we reference all the time, The Mormon News Report, Dialogue Podcast itself, Words Fall In, a Segula podcast, Face in Hat, Gospel Tangents podcast, and the Boyer Conversations about Mormon history and culture. You can support these podcasts and others by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com. That's D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-J-O-U-R-N-A-L.com. Subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. We're really, really excited to be a part of Dialogue now and support all the other podcasts on this network. There's great content there. Be sure to check it out. So Doctrine and Covenants 29, it is revelation to Joseph Smith in the presence of six other elders in 1830. The revelation goes through, I mean, the plan of salvation in general, the gathering of Israel, It talks about how children are redeemed through the atonement, and it talks about the atonement itself. And then the Easter week, it actually is split into three sections. Jesus Christ lives. Because of Jesus Christ, I will be resurrected. And Jesus Christ accomplished a perfect atonement. And then there's scriptures and thoughts listed after each section to study Easter. I just want to point out that section 29 was given right around the same time as section 28 with the whole Hiram Page incident that we talked about two weeks ago, where Hiram Page asked about Zion, he received a revelation, and Joseph Smith said, no, you're not allowed to receive this revelation for the church, and they talked about it, discussed it, and voted on it at church, and everybody decided to support Joseph as the only one who could receive that revelation, and then Hiram deferred to Joseph in the instance, but because of what Hiram Page introduced, people were talking about it. People wanted to know what Zion was, where it would be gathered, and and how it would fit into the latter days, and that is the context around this section. Yeah. I think let's just start with the beginning. Verse 6 is the first one that stood out to me in section 29. Whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, being united in prayer, according to my command, ye shall receive. Do you feel like this is different from other scriptures where it talks about if you ask in faith, then you shall receive? Because we've talked about that a little bit and kind of how, like, how faith is an ingredient to receiving a blessing, but it's not like the whole recipe. Yeah, this scripture, I had to read it three or four times to get the meaning correct because the commas bring a lot of meaning. It says, Whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, comma, being united in prayer according to my command, comma, ye shall receive. Initially, when I read it, I thought it was, Whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, comma, being united in prayer, comma, according to my command, comma, ye shall. Do you, do you see how that's like a difference? I thought it was reading as, 
whatsoever you shall ask in faith according to my command you shall receive. But it's the command according to my command is tagged to being united in prayer rather than whatsoever you shall ask in faith. So how it's supposed to be read, whatsoever you shall ask in faith, being united in prayer according to my command, that's the command, unite in prayer when you're asking in faith, you shall receive. So that brings us back to your question. How does this work with other scriptures that we know about asking in faith and receiving? This scripture doesn't specifically mention miracles, but it's saying whatsoever you shall ask. What stood out to me is the being united part. I thought this was really interesting in a church that is very authority-oriented. If someone's an authority, then they don't need to be united. If they're the only person in that position. I mean, and we already talked about how back then common consent was different and they voted on more things. Voting is a simplification, right? But I just really like this emphasis of being united in prayer because it makes me think, how have we seen this play out in church history? Like, the people not the prophets, the people being united in praying and then receiving something. A part of me really enjoys it, but part of me is like, does it actually work if the people are united in a prayer of purpose that is not congruent with what the like leaders of the church are praying about? How does that work then? Which of those desires actually happens if they're opposed, the people who are united in faith or the prophets. And I think about the priesthood revelation and the priesthood ban in the 70s. I'm not going to say, oh, it's because the people weren't united. Like, no, that's bullcrap. Like, it's because the leaders were racist. Nowadays, is that an avenue to not circumvent prophetic authority, but circumvent these man-made obstacles and systemic problems and internal prejudice in the prophets if the people are united in faith? Does that make sense? Like, can we, as a people who are not in positions of authority in the church, unite in faith and prayer, receive a revelation that is just as true for us and just as true for the church as it would be if it came from the prophet in regards to things that affect marginalized people, like the position of LGBTQ individuals in the plan of salvation, or the role of women and the authority of women, things like that. Yeah. The actual scripture, there's a footnote where it says united, and it brings you to a scripture in Third Nephi and a scripture in Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine and Covenants one, it's 84.1, and it says, a revelation of Jesus Christ unto his servant Joseph Smith Jr. and six elders as they united their hearts and lifted their voices on high. So even that, it brings it to leadership who are united in prayer shall receive these things. When I think of united in prayer, at this point, temples weren't a thing yet. Temples weren't established. Mm -hmm. But this phrase, united in prayer, it makes me think of the temple and... I know that there's some things that you can't share outside of the temple, but this is something that you can share outside of the temple. There's a moment in the temple where some of the people in the room will gather in a circle and unite in prayer and pray over the prayer roll. And often they'd pray over the missionaries and the prophet and wherever the leader in that group takes the prayer. I was thinking in that instance, that's definitely an example of being united in prayer unto the Lord. I mean, there's a speaker for the group. But that person isn't like a bishop or 
a stake president, you know, it's some kind of position in the temple, the speaker of this prayer. They have to be a man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are women in the ceremony and women that lead part of the temple ordinance before that. But you're right. Yeah, that part is always a man. I didn't notice that. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, in my mind of how I translate it, I don't think the scripture is meant to only be leadership. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting how the footnote leads us to another instance where it shows an example of leadership uniting in prayer. So I'm not sure exactly how it's meant to be read. Well, and who put the footnote there? The leadership. So (laughs) yeah, that's true. That's true. I know that there's examples of a people in the Book of Mormon uniting in prayer and coming to God, but that's also recorded by, you know, a prophet, a leader, so I'm sure they were involved in that process. Yeah, I guess I don't have an answer to this. I just wanted to bring it up mm-hmm. and maybe introduce the concept so that we can look out for it later on and in our studies outside of this and just kind of look for example, you know. Yeah. I would really like to court the idea of using that method to create change in the church nowadays for our marginalized folks. Okay, verse 7, there is an ableist metaphor there, mine elect hear my voice. Yeah, so we try to bring up ableist metaphors when we see them in scripture or conference talks or other things, just because it can put certain people on the outside. Everybody has the capacity to feel the spirit. Everybody on earth has a spirit. And when you use ableist metaphors and then say, oh, but it's spiritual, that in a way still excludes people who shouldn't be excluded if it really is a spiritual concept. We do talk about ableist metaphors more extensively in episode one, shenanigans, thorny issues, and weak things. If you want to hear more about ableist metaphors, then check out episode one. Okay. Let's talk about verses 18 through 20 really quick. It's kind of apocalyptic, end of times, last days, very, very, very vivid imagery of what happens to the wicked in the last days. And if we are taking this literally, then we believe that they're going to be destroyed in really gruesome ways. And I think there are a lot of people who take this literally in the church But who are the wicked in their minds, you know? Because honestly, most of the time I feel like their ideas of wickedness are very shaped by heteronormativity, racism, ableism, sexism. Their idea of wicked people may just be people that we consider marginalized folks and people that I really do not think deserve this kind of destruction. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Say... If we're going to apply this literally, I don't think that the marginalized people are the wicked ones. I think the oppressors are the wicked ones. And who are the oppressors? The white supremacists and the misogynists, the rapists, the people committing hate crimes, bullying LGBTQ folks. Like, these are the people that, if we're going to interpret this literally, I think deserve it more. Does anybody deserve this at all? I don't know. If we think that they don't deserve it at all, then why are we accepting this as scripture if we think that no one deserves this kind of fate, you know? Like, then then how does that influence our idea of scripture? Like, can we really excuse it as being metaphorical when it's this vivid? Can we excuse it as it just being Joseph's own thoughts? 
in which case, what does it say about Joseph and our church if we have a prophet who's thinking these things and putting them in scripture and saying that they're scripture, but they're really not? You know, I don't have an answer for that. Wow. I mean, you made me really think you asking the question, like, does anyone deserve this? Because it really does get graphic on like freaking people's skin melting off and their eyes falling out and like horrible things happening to them. Yeah justice and mercy that's what our god is that's what we believe in this church and i think we tread lightly around the justice part sometimes but that we have scriptures that are really hardcore about justice the part of me that aches for justice for the oppressed rejoices in the scripture but the part of me that knows that the oppressors are still in power in the church is very cautious when it comes to this scripture because I'm worried that it will be weaponized against the marginalized when we are the ones that need the justice and when the oppressors are the ones that need to repent. And this may be radical, but I sincerely believe that the leaders of the church have a reckoning to account for it and that they do need to repent from their racism and from their misogyny. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, so they, this is a... Tough little section of scripture there. Uh, oh, 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 yeah. So here's a little tie into something I wanted to talk about. Where it talks about, in these verses, beasts of the forest and fowls of the air devouring them. Just a little eco-feminist plug here. I really love that. <laughs> because I feel like... What? <laughs> Tell me more. We, well... <laughs> okay. I feel like... Beasts of the forest and the fowls of the air devouring the wicked people. It almost seems like cosmic karma, you know, that the creatures that humans have subjugated and violently destroyed their homes for centuries through industrialization and imperialism and also using that industrialization and imperialism to force the unfair treatment of other humans and to make them destroy the habitats like it in itself feels like justice to me and the circle of life and i'll go into verses 22 through 23 and the heaven and the earth shall be consumed and pass away and there shall be a new heaven and a new earth for all old things shall pass away and all things shall become new even the heaven and the earth and all the fullness thereof and then it goes on talking about things that won't be lost but i love this idea of a new earth and going along with this eco-feminist tangent, it reminds me of my favorite scripture in Moses 7.48, but I memorized this scripture when I was eight years old because I was a nerdy child who just read books and climbed trees all day. <laughs> Let's see if I can recite it. And Enoch looked upon the earth and heard a voice from the bowels thereof, saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained. I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my creator sanctify me that I may rest and righteousness for a season abide upon my face? And when Enoch heard the earth mourn, he wept and cried unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, wilt thou not have compassion upon the earth? That scripture really does mean a lot to me. When I read it as a kid, it just astounded me because... We have a scripture in our canon that was talking about the earth as if the earth itself had a spirit and a voice and a conscience and desires, you know? 
I mean, and you can debate whether or not that really happened, whether or not that's a metaphor, like you can debate everything in the scriptures, but I really love just accepting it on face value and recognizing that the earth itself has a spirit and that when we are destroying the earth, we are committing violence against a creature that is its own will, that is its own consciousness. And that that connects us to the animals and to the plants. And I think that also plays really well into later on in this section talking about all things are spiritual and temporal. That was really cool. I've never heard that scripture before. Really? I, I really love your thoughts around that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess my point was with the whole fowls of the air and the beasts of the field devouring the wicked people, it kind of feels like Mother Earth is just like, finally like rising up, taking back what was lost. Wow. Justice for Mother Earth. That's really cool. <laughs> wow. Wow. And then, oh my gosh, to take that even further, you read the scriptures that talks about a new heaven and a new earth. It's almost like the earth itself goes through its own resurrection yes. as well. When yes, 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 yes. Ah, I'm excited cool. about that. The patterns of resurrection and patterns of the fall. Those are two things that I want to talk about in this section. So Jesus becoming resurrected, being a pattern, humans becoming resurrected, another iteration of the pattern. The earth becoming resurrected is another iteration of that pattern. Really quick before we move on to resurrection, verses 31 through 32, talking about creating things spiritually and temporally. How do you react to that as a disabled woman? 32. Let me read that really quick before I answer your question. Yea, all things, both spiritual and temporal, I created them. First, spiritual. Secondly, temporal, which is the beginning of my work. And again, first temporal and second spiritual, which is the last of my work, which goes into the first shall be the last and the last shall be the first. That's actually just in verse 30 right before it. I've always loved the phrase, all things are spiritual, all commandments, all ordinances, however you want to look at it. I think it speaks to God's love that he created all spirits first and then bodies makes me think of Joseph's really sacred experience that he shared with us about almost having a vision of him in the pre-earth life, accepting his deafness Mm -hmm. before he came to earth and how it was his spirit that accepted that. In my mind, these scriptures just really speak to the eternal perspective of all things, that there is purpose in the things we go through, whether it has to do with disability or otherwise, whether it has to do with our own choices or the choices of others or otherwise. The thought of us existing as spirits and then choosing to come to this earth because Satan presented his plan and we could have gone with Satan, but we chose to come to this earth and that's why we're here with bodies. It's almost like we co-created the plan or co-made it happen through our choices. And That experience that Joseph shared about choosing his deafness in the pre-earth life and him having a vision about it just speaks to how we're taken care of on earth because God loves us and watches over us, but also we're taken care of because we made a plan for ourselves to take care of ourselves. Does that make sense? (laughs) We can rely on ourselves and our eternal perspectives that we had before we came to earth And we knew that despite everything we would face on earth, that we could do it because we had a say in the plan. We created our own plan. 
let me reiterate what I'm understanding from what you're saying. So you're saying that the idea of us accepting this mortality and possibly including our disabilities before we came to this earth, accepting that like almost is empowering knowing that because we know that we had knowledge back then and chose it back then and that with the fuller picture we said yes we can do it is that what you're saying yeah yes part of me really does find that comforting but i think there are some people with disabilities who might be listening who might say i did not choose this either in this life or in a past life i don't know i don't want to treat that lightly this is me piecing together a lot of thoughts that I have personally. I think having an idea of something is different than experiencing something and living through yeah. it and, you know, knowing it. So it's almost like you're like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, as a spirit child, yeah, I want to go to earth. I want to be a part of the plan. And then coming here and experiencing it, it's almost like you have to choose it again, which I think of Christ volunteering to be our savior volunteering to come down and sacrifice for our sins and our pains but once he was actually experiencing it he was like take this bitter cup from me I can't do this you know but he was still able to complete his journey and come home like I know that that doesn't make it easier for people who (laughs) face really hard days and weeks and years and lifetimes with their disabilities but for me personally it does comfort me to see the eternal perspective in things and to feel a part of it rather than just an object that it's happening to, rather than just God saying, okay, this is your life. This is what's going to happen. It's going to be really hard. Good luck. Hmm. One thing that I thought was interesting in what Channing and Elise talked about in the most recent Faithful Feminist episode is, I'm just going to summarize this because they went into it in depth, was how these Verses kind of promote this idea that non-temporal things are more holy than temporal things. How traditional bodily things, things that are associated with the earth, the body, blood, are more associated with feminine things and are things to be escaped from. And that transcendence and like exaltation happens when we can escape all these mortal things that are weighing us down and embrace ideas and intellect and spiritual things that are often more associated with male things. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens a lot, perhaps not always with the gender association, but like just taking comfort in the spiritual to kind of escape the temporal. I think that happens a lot in disability as well. Just these verses, some questions that come to my mind are, Am I my body? Do I want to be my body? Do I want to inhabit my body? If I'm separated from my body, am I still myself? Faithful Feminist shared some beautiful thoughts on your spirit wanting to stay with your body after dying. I wanted to kind of supplement that with some poetry about bodies from disabled people. (laughs) Yeah. I want to emphasize the fact that as disabled people, 
we are hyper aware of our bodies more so than able-bodied people are. And we have very complicated relationships with them. So if we're going more along with the spiritual idea, here are some poems from Jennifer Bartlett, a disabled woman with cerebral palsy from her book, Beauty is a Verb, A New Poetry of Disability. Main part, primary figure, the opposite of the soul, opening, mere container, the thing that transitions, shelter me, flawed shelter, unwieldy, spastic soldier, invalid of no legal force. So this one, she doesn't say the word body, but it's She's alluding to it. She's describing the body, representing it as a mere container. And in this, she's kind of encapsulating the idea that the body is not her, you know, which I think is something that is common in disabled people when we feel like, yeah, I wouldn't have chosen this disabled body, a body with this much pain and difficulties. And then she has a more neutral one as well. This is my body. I am its light. A mere shadow remains so that the body is erased. Accepting movement, I am all motion, and this motion is neither weak nor hideous. This motion is simply my own. And then she also has one where she views the body with loving compassion. To walk means to fall, to thrust forward, to fall and catch. The seemingly random in its own system of gestures, based on a series of neat errors falling and catching, to thrust forward, sometimes the body misses, then collapses, sometimes it shatters. With this particular knowledge, a movement spastic and unwieldy, it is its own lyric, and the able-bodied are tone-deaf to this singing. Which, that last one, I was like, you used an ableist metaphor in your poem about the body, but I don't object to it entirely. And maybe I'd feel different if I was deaf, but she's equating the different ways her body falls and catches and moves the kind of quote-unquote spastic ways as its own kind of music and elegance. And that able-bodied people who don't have that motion in their bodies are unable to experience that music, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. I love that you found three different perspectives from the same disabled poet. That's really cool. Our purpose is to bring <laughs> disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit, and that's not going to be a cookie-cutter experience for people uh, across the board. While you were introducing these poems, I thought about the Easter week of Come, Follow Me. It introduces a scripture that Doctrine and Covenants 93, 33-34. For man is spirit, the elements are eternal, and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy. When separated, man cannot receive a fullness of joy. When it referred to this scripture, it was under a section called resurrection. So it was referring to the resurrection, saying you can't have a fullness of joy if your spirit and your body are separated. Thinking about it in a resurrected sense, it is really cool how we have our spirits and our bodies in their final perfect form for us, and how that is going to be such a joyful moment for everyone. Oh man, it just brings down the hammer for me on 
whatever your idea of your perfect body is, even if it isn't what most people would consider perfect, it will be perfect for you, whatever that means. Because it, it wouldn't make sense. You wouldn't be happy in a body that you see as imperfect, even if someone else looks at your body and says, yep, that's perfection, especially in disabled eyes. Yeah, I was thinking something similarly when looking at some of the Easter scriptures. In Doctrine and Covenants 88, it talks about the spirit and the body are the soul of man. And the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul, meaning the spirit and the body. And if you connect that to Doctrine and Covenants 18, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. You can read it as the worth of the body combined with the spirit is great in the sight of God. Hmm. I don't know. I just, I really love my body. Like, I don't think it's bad for disabled people to say that they love their bodies. And I would be sad to leave it, you know, and I think our spirits are disabled without our bodies. You can almost view death as a metaphor for disability in itself more than just the body not moving, but the spirit itself being unable to experience the world. So going along the idea of resurrection, we view the resurrection as like overcoming disability overcoming corruption, overcoming mortality of the body. And we view Jesus Christ as kind of the symbol of that, you know? So Derek from Beyond the Block shared a PDF with us. He shared with us a chapter of a book by feminist liberation and theologian Dorothy Scioli. Sole. Oh, she's German, so it's Sole. I can't pronounce the umlaut. Anyway. In this chapter, Dorothy's written a poem. It says, On Resurrection. They ask me about the resurrection. I've certainly heard of it. That a person no longer hastens towards death. That death can be behind one. Because love is before one. That fear can be behind one. The fear of being abandoned. Because I myself have heard of it. Certainly, there is nothing there. It could go on forever. Oh, do not ask me about the resurrection, a fairy tale from age-old times, which one quickly forgets. I listen to those who dry me out and belittle me. I turn towards, becoming slowly accustomed to being dead, in the heated dwelling, the great stone before the door. Oh, do not ask me about resurrection. Oh, do not stop asking me. And I feel like that last line really beautifully summarizes my feelings towards resurrection and disability. There's parts of me that don't want to hear it. There's a part of me that wants to make peace with mortality, with weakness, that wants to experience this temporal reality to the fullest without having to place my hope in the next life to experience joy. Like I, I want to experience all the nitty gritty joy that this life is offering me. And then there's a part of me that also really wishes and hopes for a resurrection. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, it does. Yes, completely. So I had to share that poem. Oh, do not ask me about the resurrection. Oh, do not stop asking me. And then, oh yeah, going on how we view Jesus Christ as a symbol of overcoming mortality in Job, so I went from come follow me to him 136, I know that my Redeemer lives, to Job. And in Job 19, 
verses 20 through 26, Job says, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God, and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And at first, when I read this, I was like, ew, he's talking about like worms. But then I, I thought about it a little deeper. And I don't think he's lamenting his mortal body. When he's talking about the worms destroying his body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. We read this section without considering the sentence right before, which is, after my skin worms destroy my body. So I think he's talking about his death, and yet he's emphasizing the fact that it will indeed be him, his own body, seeing God not a new body. It's the same body, the same mortal one that he's inhabiting now. Mm. I really like that. I feel like this is also an example of a neutral depiction of the body and mortality because you have both positive and negative things in here. The negative of worms destroying his body, but you also have those same eyes, that same skin beholding God in that same body, and that's a positive thing. Hmm. Yeah, I, the more we talk about it, the more I have like, almost like a reverence for the dual nature of how we can view resurrection at the same time. Like, yeah. Yeah. I've never read that scripture that way. Yeah, because you can almost put our own disability in there, you know. So he says, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, I could say, and though my chronic pain destroys my body, you know, or though my legs will not work, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I just, hmm. I really love the idea that he's taking his body with him to see God. He's not just leaving it alone, you know, and I feel like a lot of times we forget the temporal in our rush to be exalted spiritually. I almost view my body as like my own little pet that I have to take care of. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to be separated from it because that's part of me. It's part of my soul. And I think Job really understood that. Wow. I've never thought about, we always say, like in the scriptures to yourself, or people say like, take out this person's name and put your own name in. But I've never thought about applying an experience in a scripture, like taking out like this detrimental experience to the body that Job shares. And then putting it in with your own experience that's rough on your body. Yeah, that's, oh. Katie, I also read the book that you gave me called Disability Theory by Tobin Siebers. And he has a whole chapter on body theory. Yeah, Tobin Siebers is one of the most well-known disability studies researcher. He himself was disabled as well. Yes, so definition of body theory 
is a sociological theory that involves the analyses of the ordered body, the actions and approaches towards the notion of lived body, or the conceptions of the body, a dynamic field that involves various conceptualizations and re-significations of the body, as well as its formation or transformation that affect how bodies are constructed, perceived, evaluated, and experienced. That was a really long way to talk about the body, what it means, what it does, how that influences our personhood, and how it's influenced by society and vice versa. And this theory is not unique to stability theory. In this chapter, Tobin Siebers starts off with an idea from body theory by Michel Foucault, who is a French philosopher. Foucault has this section where he talks about the docile body, and he has this passage that kind of glorifies the body in the olden days, in the ancient days, in the days of the philosopher, this body of a soldier that was fit, had a flat stomach, a strong jawline, and it went on and on and on. And then Foucault, he kind of laments the loss of that, and he says the body nowadays in the modern age is a docile body. No longer is it kind of doing these things on its own. It's more of a, and then I'm putting Mormon scripture into this, more of a thing to be acted on than a thing to act. And he's saying that this modern docile body, because it can be subjected, used, transformed, and improved, it's not as real of a body or as good of a body. And Tobin Sieber says Foucault's idea of a body in that passage is actually really ableist because it represents the docile body as an evil to be eradicated. But really, this docile body is the disabled body. Tobin Siebers said that Foucault's account of the body is a not-so-subtle retelling of the fall, meaning the fall of Adam and Eve, in which well-being and ability are sacrificed to enter the modern age. The new docile body replaces the able body. Health and naturalness disappear. Human beings seem more machine-like. The docile body requires supports and constraints. It's every movement based on a calculation. Which I thought was super fascinating. In verse 35 through 40 in section 29, we have scriptures in this section that talk about the fall. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting that you can kind of view the fall of Adam and Eve from paradise into mortality as going from being able-bodied to disabled. And not only that, but because all of us are born into mortality, we're not born into this paradise. We're all being born into a disabled state, you know, into an imperfect mortal state. Wow. Which brings me to another thing Tobin Siebers said. We often see the disabled body as the other and the able body as the true body. But really, the able body is the surface of the ego and the disabled body is the true body. The cycle of life runs in actuality from disability to temporary ability back to disability. Wow. So he's saying that really disability is the normal. The temporary ability and differing levels of ability is the abnormal. 
I just thought that was super interesting in this perspective of the fall. Oh, and another allegory of the fall that I thought about from ability to disability is going from 2019 into 2020 in quarantine. Like, because Tobin Sieber says the human ego does not easily accept the disabled body. It prefers pleasure. Perhaps this is because, as Freud explained, the ego exists on the surface of the body like skin. It thrives on surface phenomena and on superficial glimmers of enjoyment. The able body is the true image of the other. It is a prop for the ego, a myth we all accept for the sake of enjoyment. And I feel like that's kind of what it felt like to a lot of able-bodied people going into quarantine. All of a sudden, able-bodied people could no longer rely on superficial enjoyment, which is the phrase that Siebers used, right? Able-bodied people, they were forced to face weaknesses. They were forced to go without pleasure, forced to endure like psychological pain. And people hated it because they never had to do it before being able-bodied. Like, most people, especially able-bodied people, don't want to face mortality, the prospect of death, of not moving, of stagnancy, of pain. And these are all things that they had to face going into quarantine, you know? Just like the fall from the Garden of Eden into this mortal world. Mortality, death, not moving, stagnancy, pain. It makes me wonder about the people who, like, thwarted quarantine and who refused to wear masks, who refused to social distance. I feel like underneath that whole, oh, I'm going to rebel against authority, you can't tell me what to do surface is this, like, deathly fear of their own mortality, you know? If they have to give up these things that distract them from their mortality, meeting with friends, roller coaster rides, going dancing, etc. Then they have to face that they're mortal. They have to face that they're weak. They have to face the fact that this virus is dangerous, you know, and they don't want to do that. Mm. I thought that was really fascinating. And it also is really fascinating to me, especially because of the amount of, I'm just going to say it, <laughs> the amount of members of the church in the United States who were acting this way. Mm-hmm. All this about body theory and resurrection makes me think that there is a correlation there between people who refused to go into quarantine and people who, like, have this super idealized version of the resurrection. Because both of those things are transcending the mortal body that has pain and weakness, you know? It makes me wonder, like, how their ideas of resurrection are different from people who are disabled ideas of resurrection. I feel like my mind has been blown like over and over and over. (laughs) This is what we're supposed to do when the scripture says all things are spiritual. But like, I'm sure it's just the tip of the iceberg of how you can look at disability as like a spiritual thing and a temporal thing. Mm -hmm. And it's entertaining to me to think about how like devastating it is for people when they don't have really simple things that ultimately don't super matter. And that's that was the reaction that we got during the pandemic. I mean, I know there were really big things happening and there were people suffering a lot, but I feel like the majority of people were devastated over these small things that they were losing that were just temporary losses and not even 
lifelong losses compared to what other people are going through. And now that we're starting to come out of it, not totally out of it, I feel like people are going to stand on the pulpit at church and be like, wow, I learned so much about how to prioritize things. And, you know, I feel like people are going to take it as a lesson that they learned things and what is really important because it's over, you know, because they got through it and it's over and now they can go back to their normal lives and they take comfort in the fact that things are going back to quote unquote normal for them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's like entertaining to me. In the fact of, like, did you actually learn what you think you learned? Mm-hmm. Like, people still put so much value on the body and on the experiences that they can have that disabled people can't always have or have to put off having because of symptoms of their disability. Uh, I'm judging so hard right now, but I feel like so many able-bodied people are going to have, like, a spiritual, like, awakening from their experience in quarantine that disabled people have already had to go through because of their disabilities. Or not even just because of their disabilities, but because of ableism in society. Yeah. It's almost like being able-bodied and having that privilege is its own illusion, you know? And the more able-bodied you are, and the more you espouse that and do these temporal things with your able body that are really transient and don't really matter to salvation or to life or love the deeper entrenched they are in this illusion you know Mm -hmm. and when you're talking about them going up to the pulpit and like oh I learned something but like okay you didn't now you're just back in your illusion you know Tobin Siebers said the illusion is being able-bodied because You started off disabled as a baby, and you're going to end up disabled. Like, literal death, you could see that as a disabling event. Yeah. When I view disability in the body this way, it makes me feel differently about resurrection and the way we teach about it in the church, because then are we just recycling ourselves into this illusion that is everlasting? Able-bodied people want their spirit to be reunited with their body, And they want it to be perfect and able to do all these things that they experience on earth and be able to do those things forever and ever and ever. And when we talk about that in the church, like, is our idea of resurrection in and of itself ableist, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. It makes me think of the Plato's allegory of the cave. So in Plato's allegory, there's this person that's chained up in a cave and They are there their whole life, and they see shadows on the wall, and that's their perception of reality, these shadows that aren't even real. And eventually, somehow they break free, and they have to get to this dark path to work their way up an incline out of the cave. And it's a really hard struggle to get out of the cave, and once they do, they see light and life and a world that they never knew, and they're awakened to this new reality that was there the whole time, they just couldn't see it. And I feel like that's how we view spiritual moments at times. And yet our perception of eternity is still a sliver. But when we have these moments, we're like, I learned so much, I'm awakened. And I, anyway, and probably this is me being really holier than thou or judgmental. And I don't mean to be that way, but I just want to point out that the experience that disabled people have in a lifetime is different than what able-bodied people experienced in the pandemic 
the experience that disabled people had in the pandemic was so much worse than what able-bodied people had in the pandemic. Like, they just have no idea what it is like to live in a disabled body. Yeah. It's almost like they're going back into the Garden of Eden. They had the fall. They went into mortality. They got a glimpse, a sliver of what disabled people experience and how we process our own mortality. And then once quarantine is lifted, they're going to go back into the illusion of safety that is the garden. And then they say, look, look at all I learned. I went to Earth. I was alive. But what are you really experiencing there in the garden? You know? And I want to say with this, too, obviously, able-bodied people have hard things in their life. We're just specifically talking about the body, disability, and what that brings into your life. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like this is part of the reason why the church has such an emphasis on resurrection and perfection. And part of why it makes me wonder if the idea of resurrection is ableist as... Tobin Siebers quoted feminist disability scholar Rosemary Garland Thompson in her book, Extraordinary Bodies. Garland Thompson says, quote, disability is the unorthodox made flesh, refusing to be normalized, neutralized, or homogenized. The church is uncomfortable with disability because it's not orthodox. So I guess perfection and orthodoxy are kind of braided together in the church. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you act perfectly, then you are orthodox. Then you are doing things exactly the way you're supposed to. Then you are guaranteed salvation. When you break from the norm, when you are, quote, imperfect, suddenly people don't know how to reconcile that with eternal salvation. Going more towards Easter and Come Follow Me, the commentary on Easter and on Jesus Christ I thought was really interesting. And the actual Come Follow Me manual, it like, I don't know, it moves away from a discussion of Jesus Christ's literal body after he was resurrected. And they move more towards this intangible, metaphysical representation of Christ. You know, they talk about how he speaks, (laughs) like, through the prophets. You know, we can see his hand in our lives, except we're not actually seeing his literal hand, like the brother of Jared, you know, we're seeing effects that are supposedly caused by Christ, but he's moving through people. I feel like they're saying this as a way that's meant to be comforting. Like, oh, even though Christ isn't here physically, like you can still believe that he's here in spirit, you know, but that just makes me wonder, how does this distance us from the physical Jesus, from his physical resurrection, and even from our physical bodies. Does that make sense? Yeah. It is an interesting shift. So the first section is Jesus Christ lives, and it shares two examples of where Joseph Smith saw Christ in the flesh Mm -hmm. outside of the first vision. But then you're totally right. It testifies that Christ truly lives, resurrected in a actual body, and then it moves to these metaphors that are really like loose about his body and seeing his hand in our lives. Yeah. I don't know if that shift was intentional or if that's just more the language we use today. Yeah. I feel like that just contributes to the idea that salvation is spiritual, you know, and it leaves behind the temporalness. But as we talked about earlier in this episode, the soul is the body and the spirit combined together, you know? Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about Jesus in this intangible way, 
we're forgetting his soul. We're not talking about the whole Jesus. It's a good reminder that we need to be intentional when we testify of the resurrected Jesus and not just talk about him as if he's an abstract spirit with no body. Because we know that was the completion of the atonement was he had to be resurrected so he could bring forth the first fruits of resurrection, right? Yeah, 100%. And not only that, but also when we forget his body, when we're talking about these things, we forget the marks in his body that Mm -hmm. represent mortality, that represent disability. And we talked about this in earlier episodes too, about how the scars in his hands and in his side represent disability and how it shows that we, if we choose, can possibly keep our quote-unquote disabilities after we're resurrected, you know? But all that Mm -hmm. goes away when we forget to talk about his body. So I read all the scriptures that it listed in the Easter Come Follow Me, and I noticed something really interesting in the section entitled, Because of Jesus Christ, I Will Be Resurrected. None of the actual scriptures listed goes into the idea of no hair shall be lost or, you know, the Mm. idea of what perfection is. Actually, the bigger focus on these scriptures that are shared in this section are the fact that no matter how anyone has lived on the earth, all will be resurrected, whether you're quote unquote good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. All will be resurrected. And the idea of if you die in the Lord or die faithful, you'll receive an inheritance or eternal life or death will not be bitter, but it will be sweet. It more goes into that focus. And I was like, huh, I don't think that that shift will happen in the church in general. I just find it interesting that it happened in this one lesson that everyone is supposed to focus on in Easter week, which is a really big deal. I do like the fact that it didn't define perfection because then people are not defining perfection for us as disabled people. However, I just really do lament the loss of, (laughs) my favorite word, visceral imagery of tangible things, you know, not a hair shall be lost. You can read that in a lot of different ways, including as metaphor or as literal. And part of me as a kid, I was like, does that mean I'm going to have a unibrow? I don't want a unibrow. (laughs) But I, I, I don't know, and maybe this is the writer in me, but I just, I love having these words that ground the scripture, you know, that relate to my body. I think we have to tread really carefully when we talk about resurrection in the body, because like I said, we don't want to ascribe our version of resurrection and perfection to other people. But at the same time, I think it would be a good exercise for all of us to imagine what it would feel like to be resurrected. Yeah. Like, I don't know if this is something that is a bad exercise or not, but like, what would happen if we wrote in our journals, you know, this is my idea of resurrection. This Mm -hmm. is what's going on with my skin. This is what's going on with my hair. This is what's going on with my limbs. This is what's going on with my digestive system, with my nervous system. This is what's going on with my bones. And that might be a hard exercise and not something that you can just quickly jot down. But in the long run, I think we could benefit from that. I think that's a great idea because then that still brings in your own idea of what perfection is and how you value certain parts of your body that other people might not look at and value the same as you. And that's not to say that it won't change. Yeah. Especially as 
you become more or less disabled or as you unlearn systems of oppression like racism, cis heteronormativity, and ableism, you know, maybe when you write out your idea of resurrection, maybe you'll find that it makes you uncomfortable because you don't actually like that idea of resurrection. I think it would be an interesting exercise. That's really cool. Oh, I had something. Go ahead. When we like went through disability.churchofjesuschrist.org, every time it talked about accountability for disabled people and why a disabled person might not be baptized according to their knowledge of the gospel, it always referenced verses that specifically talked about children. And I was like, ah! Mm-hmm. Disabled people are often seen as eternally childlike, and that's offensive to disabled people because we are adults like everyone else and we can live our lives. But yeah, I thought that this was really cool because section 29, verse 49 and 50, it doesn't mention children mm-hmm. and, and still talks about how the atonement of Jesus Christ can cover people who don't have the knowledge and the accountability to be baptized. Verse 49 and 50 says, And again, I say unto you that whoso having knowledge, have I not commanded to repent? And he that hath no understanding, it remaineth in me to do according as it is written. It's talking about accountability here. It's talking about through the atonement of Jesus Christ, even if you don't have the knowledge or understanding to repent and be baptized, you can be saved. You know, if you're a child or if you're a disabled person that doesn't have the accountability. And I'm like, why doesn't the church reference these scriptures in the disability section? Why are we always pushed back to child? scriptures when that's not the circumstance that we're in. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting that the church views disabled people as being more quote-unquote innocent and less accountable and employing less agency. Mm -hmm. And if you counter that with what I just talked about, how able-bodied people are kind of living in the Garden of Eden and disabled people have quote-unquote fallen and are living in mortality you know it's almost the opposite like the church thinks that we're the ones who are living in the in a state of innocence in the garden of eden and that able-bodied people are the ones who are living in reality but we're like really no y'all are the Mm -hmm. ones who are living the illusion of able-bodiedness and we're the ones who are living reality huh Mm -hmm. i'm glad you brought that up Yeah, I want to email someone about that. Be like, hey, change all these scriptures out for this scripture. This is better. This is what you're looking for. (laughs) Do it, Katie. (laughs) I had another thought, but it's super random. Okay. (laughs) I know people love to make fun of Stephanie Meyer and Twilight. Oh my gosh. But I love the host In this book, it's the perspective of an alien who enters the human's brain and takes over their consciousness. It's in first person, and it's the point of view of this alien whose body is rebelling against it because the human consciousness is still, like, in there speaking to it. I remember reading it for, like, the second or third time in high school, and I just was like, astounded going out into the world, driving around my town and looking at the trees and marveling at the fact that I could choose to put my fingers 
on this piece of bark or that I could choose to look at this bird or that I could see these leaves for myself, you know, and that I was choosing Mm. it. And I felt this awe towards my physical senses that I had never encountered before. And it was because in the book, Stephanie Meyer creates this perspective of someone who cannot fully inhabit their physical senses, whether that's Mm. the alien who doesn't have a body of her own until at the very end, spoiler alert, or it's the human who's trapped against her will inside her own body. Anyway, I don't know. I feel, I feel good after this episode. I feel a new reverence for my body, not in what it can become, but just the way it is right now. Right. Even though we're talking about resurrection and that more points toward what our bodies can become, I feel the same that I've gained a respect for what my body is now. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We will wrap up now. Please follow us on Instagram at holyhuman. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. On Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. On patreon.com slash holyhuman. Our email is at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. And we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Head on over to dialoguejournal.com to check out all the content that these amazing creators are contributing to the Mormon intellectual sphere. We also want to thank Matthew for our intro and outro music. We access the song through freesounds.org. We will see you next time.